Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. We have 90 minutes of information with our broadcast partners. As you listen to the conversations I have with them, you'll glean information that is a necessity as you try to look at the times in which we're living, compare them to the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, and see how the politics of this world are playing out and actually setting the stage for these Bible prophecies to be fulfilled. You know what? We moved farther south. We were at the middle part of the state of Florida in Hudson at Word of Life. Now we're at Coconut Creek. That's near the Fort Lauderdale area. We're going to be at the First Baptist Church with Dr. Jerry Williamson. Boy, this guy's a ball of fun. I'm just looking forward to the fellowship with Jerry and Sylvia, Jerry and his wife. And uh, we're then going to have a great time studying the prophetic word of God with all of his people. That's First Baptist Church of Coconut Creek. It's located at 5100 West Hillsboro Boulevard. Love to have you come. We start at 930 on Sunday morning and finish up in the evening around 7 o'clock. We're not going to go all day. We'll have a break for lunch and a little nap, as, of course, you do on Sunday. Uh, But if you can, come and join us as we study the prophetic word of God. Right now, though, let's begin our conversations with our broadcast partners because it's so essential for us to get the details behind the headlines that these men bring to the table. First one out is Ken Timmerman. He's in the Washington, D.C. area. Ken, let me talk to you about Russia. Uh, They are warning Israel and the West, i.e. the European Union and America, against any attack on Iran. It's said that uh, this could result in a bad situation. I'm sure he must be talking about this issue there in Russia, the foreign minister, because of the fact of the new Israeli government trying to come into place. They're putting a coalition together, Prime Minister Netanyahu seemingly winning. Uh, But uh, the Russians are saying, hey, watch yourself here now. But at the same time, it looks like they're pulling their people out of Syria. Talk to me about this. Well, uh, you're right. They're pulling their people out of Syria, which shows a a, a lack of uh, confidence in the future of the Assad regime. At the same time, uh, they're trying to reinforce or double down, if you wish, their support for the Iranian regime. Um, the Iranians have just finished a uh, an inconclusive uh, session, uh, two days talks with officials from the International Atomic Energy Agency, who went to Tehran earlier this uh, earlier this week, came came back with uh, nothing at all in their hands. They had uh, claimed that they were going, uh, hoping to seal a deal with the Iranians to at least suspend part of their uranium enrichment programs, but. Uh, got no progress on that whatsoever. So the Russians are now turning around and saying, uh, don't get any ideas in your head uh, about striking Iran because um, it would lead to uh, confusion. Now, it's not clear. There's not, a, um, there's not an either-or here. They're not saying, don't do it or else, and then spelling out the or else. They're just saying, don't do it because it could lead to bad things. I think this is an empty threat from the Russians. Uh, they are simply reasserting their support for the Iranian regime, but not really saying, making any specific threat. Well, and what's also interesting to me, at the same time, the Russians have moved their naval forces, at least a portion of them, in the largest post-Soviet era military exercises, or naval exercises there, in the waters off the coast of Syria. 
And at that same time, Bashar Assad making a statement, even if you destroy Damascus, I'm going to still win. Talk to me about the complexities of the Russian-Syrian situation. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to see this develop. Uh, the Russians have been moving into the warm seas for decades. Uh, they have been, uh, you know, one of the reasons they backed the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, which they did covertly, was to gain access to the warm seas. Uh, it's been something that they've been, uh, that has been underway since the time of the czars. Uh, but more recently, they made progress, and they have a naval base, a naval uh, facility in Tartus on the Mediterranean in Syria. Uh, and these naval exercises that you mentioned are going to be taking place off the coast of Tartus. Uh, the Russians have not historically had a significant naval presence in the Mediterranean. So to see them beef up that base in Tartus, to see them actually conduct military exercises in the Mediterranean, is, um, I think, uh, a sign that Russia is flexing its muscles under Vladimir Putin. Uh, they're trying to tell the West, uh, this is no longer the Mare Nostrum, this is no longer your sea that you control, but we have a stake in it as well. Um, they are not going to be actively confronting the U.S. military, as far as I can tell, um, but they are just trying to assert, hey, we're there. Uh, we're not going to let things get spin out of control completely in Syria, and when push comes to shove, we will get our, um, our citizens out of the country. They could have tens of thousands of people in Syria. That evacuation that they've started now, Jimmy, has just been on a very small scale, uh, but this could escalate very rapidly. And my guess is they're positioning those forces to be able to accelerate the evacuation of Russian civilians. So again, it doesn't look too well for Syria uh, because of the fact that even the Russians are hesitating as to whether they should stand still with the Bashar Assad regime. But let's focus on Africa just a moment. This last week, uh, we've seen unbelievable terroristic activities there in Algeria. They went after a natural gas facility. Many people killed, a lot of them foreigners. And al-Qaeda now making the threat that uh, there's going to be more attacks in Algeria. Looks like to me that the Islamic radicals are moving across the world and becoming very active in what they're trying to do as they endeavor to take over this world. You know, what I find very interesting about this, Jimmy, is, is how long this has been percolating, how long it's been developing. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time overseas, as you know, and, and my sources in, in various European intelligence agencies have been looking at North Africa for at least four years. They've been looking at the situation in Mali. They've been looking at the situation in the desert of Mauritania. They've been looking at the development of a drug route from uh, Nicaragua, and from uh, Hugo Chavez's uh, Venezuela and Cuba into Mauritania, into the deserts of North Africa, and then up into Europe. Uh, and this has been facilitated by al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda agents, if you wish, in the governments of these countries. Uh, Al Algeria and, and Mali are not you know, all that far apart across the desert. This also took place, the particular gas facility that was attacked uh, is right across the border from Libya, and it's a deserted area. I mean, there's, there's really, it is the desert, and, and there's not much around. Uh, it's easy for al-Qaeda to move around in those areas. They've been implanted for years, and I suspect that they're going to um, launch more attacks like this if they have the forces to do so. Well, you know, uh, what concerns me, and I want to get your uh, thoughts on this, we just had the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, 
be questioned by the United States Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. I think she made a mockery of this questioning, by the way. want to know what your thoughts are. But at the same time, it was focusing on the Benghazi attack on our embassy and the killing of four of the U.S. personnel there. Is there any connection between what's going on in Mali and Algeria as it relates to Benghazi and because of the weakness, supposedly, of the United States? Well, uh, again, it is al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which is that entire region. Uh, so it is, it is uh, a loosely affiliated organization that was involved in all of these attacks. You know, you mentioned Hillary Clinton's uh, testimony in the Senate and the, the House. Uh, it really was um, an extraordinary uh, command performance on her part of contempt of those who were questioning her. When uh, one senator, Ron Johnson, had the gall, if you wish, to ask her, well, was this attack in Benghazi because of a protest, protest over a, a movie that nobody saw about Islam, or, or was this an organized terrorist attack? She pounded her fist on the table, you know, mo- with mock indignation, and said, uh, uh, you know, what difference does it make? What difference does it make what actually led to the attack? I listened to that sequence, uh, Jimmy, a couple of times, and it was just so extraordinary. What difference does it make how they died? They're dead, and now let's move on and see what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, it it really twisted logic to say what difference does it make. It makes every difference in the world to know whether the uh, Obama administration ignored a threat from al-Qaeda in Benghazi and essentially uh, uh, walked away from its responsibilities to protect our citizens, or whether... This attack took them completely by surprise. They had no warning whatsoever. It makes every difference in the world, and Hillary cannot just sweep that under the table. I ask you this, Ken. Do you think we're going to get to the bottom of what did really take place in Benghazi and hold those responsible for it responsible and make them have to pay ever? Uh, I don't, and and I think uh, Senator Rand Paul put his finger on it uh, very clearly. He said, uh, you know, Madam Secretary, with all due respect, if I had been President of the United States, uh, when this happened, I would have fired you. I would have relieved you of your duty, was the, the, the term he used. He said, I can understand that you wouldn't read a cable uh, from your uh, embassy in Vienna, Austria, uh, saying that requesting $100,000 to put in an electric charging station. I can understand you might have been too busy to read that. I can understand you might not have read a cable from, from you know, the embassy in, in India saying they wanted $100,000 to bring three comedians to India uh, to give comic uh, skits. Uh, but I don't understand that you would not be reading the cables from Benghazi, which she said she had not read. And he said, because of that, if I had been president of the United States, I would have relieved you of your duties. Well, Hillary's not been relieved of her duties. She has resigned um, at the time that she had always said she would, right after the inauguration uh, of uh, Obama for his second term. Uh, it, by all appearances, she's going to prepare a presidential run for 2016. And uh, she claimed that the accountability review done by the State Department uh, uh, found nobody above the level of a third-rank bureaucrat who might have been responsible for anything in Benghazi. It absolutely is mind-boggling. And, ele- and unless the Senate and the House of Representatives uh, persist uh, against uh, the media and against the protests of innocence of the Democrats, no, we will never get to the bottom of this. Well, we're going to keep talking about it and try to keep it in focus for the American people to want to get some answers. And because this does have a political significance with what's happening in that area of the world as well as the future. 
Ken Timmerman from Washington, D.C., the man who covers geopolitical activities for us. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to bring to these microphones David Dolan analyzing the recent Israeli elections. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're going to, as promised, go now and have conversation with David Dolan, a Middle East news update, and David right out of the box. I need to ask you about what Hamas is doing. They're establishing a military academy for school children. In other words, they want to train up school children to be involved in the the armed struggle against the Jewish state of Israel. Your thoughts about that? Well, they've been uh, propagating uh, hatred against Israel to their children all along, and uh, it's not, uh, frankly, just Hamas, but as you know very well from from your interviews over the years and your time in Israel, the Palestinian Authority also sponsors uh, television programs, uh, a version of Sesame Street, uh, which will have some very strong anti-Israel calling upon children to rise up, you know, against the Jewish people. So it's not new, certainly a, a worrisome development and uh, just a, a one of many signs that the Palestinians are not really interested in settling with Israel and having a final peace treaty with Israel and living in peace side by side as some of their leaders say, as Yasser Arafat pledged to do when he signed the Oslo Peace Accords. And we have to recall, Jimmy, that uh, 
the existence of the Palestinian Authority and, and even Hamas ruling Gaza, uh, that uh, is all in, an indirect result of the peace process. Uh, Hamas wouldn't have been free to throw the Palestinian Authority out of uh, the Gaza Strip in 2007 if the Palestinian Authority hadn't been there as a result of the peace treaty. Otherwise, Israel would still be in control of Gaza and uh, Jews would still be living in the communities that existed there, the, uh, the communities that were taken down in 2005 by Ariel Sharon. So that's the background to it, and it's uh, uh, yet another sign that uh, they're going to continue their jihad war uh, until the end. At least uh, that's their view. Talk to me about Prime Minister Netanyahu winning the election, we think. And I say that with a, a bit of a question mark in the comment because of the fact he has to form a coalition government. Uh, talk to me about the win by Netanyahu, the lack of the power that he had last time, and how is he going to form this coalition? Well, Jimmy, uh, you know, I, I've discussed Israeli governments for many, many years and have, have lived over 30 years in Israel, so seen many come and go. And it is a very lively, thriving democracy in that any party that gets at least 2.5% of the national vote makes it into the Knesset. So we actually have 12 political parties that have made it into this new Knesset. And at the end of the last one, Jimmy, we had a record 17 political parties represented in the Knesset. The reason it was so large is several parties split apart. Uh, the Labor Party did. Ehud Barak left, formed his own little coalition and his own little party, and others did as well. So we had so many parties. Well, 12 are in there now. Four are from the uh, center-right, or the right, uh, religious parties and the Likud. Uh, four are in the center, or left, center-left. And, uh, and four uh, are Arab parties. So you have uh, quite a representation, quite a diversity of opinion in the Knesset, and that's what we got now. And for Benjamin Netanyahu to form a government, he needs 61 mandates in the Knesset. Well, his party won uh, uh, 31, I believe it was. And the Yeshatid, a new party, a new centrist party, won 19. And he's going to have to work with them. Uh, if he cannot recruit them into his new government, he'll have to rely on just his natural uh, previous coalition partners, uh, the, the Shots Party, uh, an Orthodox party, and two other religious parties, one mainly supported by uh, Jews living in Judea and Samaria. That's, uh, uh, they got 11 seats. That's Naftali Bennett's party. He, his parents were from San Francisco. He's a very wealthy Israeli businessman, has done well for himself over the years. Uh, he, he can form a government with his natural allies, but that only gives him 60 seats. Uh, he needs 61. So he needs to either, uh, uh, t he needs to take one or two of the centrist parties into his coalition to have a viable coalition. So he's going to try to form this broad national unity coalition, but it's going to be very, very difficult. So um, we'll have to see how this goes. But everybody's holding out right now their, their cards, and their, the, the smaller parties are saying, Here, here's the price, here's what we want to join your government. So Netanyahu is scrambling a bit, and as you suggested, it isn't certain he will succeed in forming a government if he cannot get a government together within 40 days. And by law, uh, President uh, Perez must ask somebody else to try, and that would apparently be 
uh, Yair Lapid, and he would put together a center-left government. So nothing is certain in Israeli politics. It's very fluid, but it is a very thriving, lively democracy for sure. And that being said, David, what about what looks into the future for Israel? For example, you, the new government, whatever form or complexion it takes, is going to have to deal with Egypt and Mohammed Morsi, a Muslim Brotherhood leader. They're going to have to deal with Iran, the threat of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, the Syrian civil war, the possible use of chemical weapons, and the Palestinians, as we've already talked about. Uh, This does not look like it's going to be an easy road ahead for the government, whoever may make up that government. Well, that's right. And, and Jimmy, that's that's Benjamin Netanyahu's main um, uh, plea right now, if I could put it that way, to these other parties, is that we in Israel are facing enormous problems, enormous issues, uh, uh, existential issues. Uh, Iran, uh, you know, vowing to destroy Israel. Uh, Bashar Assad uh, under siege, uh, threatening to use his chemical weapons as a last resort, as we talked about before, uh, upon Israel. So these are huge issues, and then there's domestic issues. The economy is slowing down, as the worldwide economy is in Israel. Uh, housing prices are starting to fall for the first time in the whole economic crisis, and other issues that need to be dealt with. So he's pleading with the centrist parties and the right-wing parties to join him, to not make too stiff demands, to bend a bit more and, you know, be willing to work together with him to uh, solve some of these. But it does make it clear that he's going to have a harder time taking any initiatives uh, against Iran or uh, with the Palestinians, whatever the issue is, uh, because he is going to have a fairly uh, unstable coalition, it looks like, uh, a fairly, uh, a very diverse coalition where he has uh, a centrist party that wants to see the religious parties weakened and wants to see Orthodox Jews grafted into the army. That's a central platform of the Yeshatid party, of uh, Yair Lapid's new party. Uh, they want to see that. Well, the religious parties are totally against that. So how they can sit around the same table and get along and support the prime minister is anyone's guess. And, Jimmy, I, I'm kind of thinking that the election results indicate, as many Israeli analysts are saying, we'll probably see a new round of elections within a year or two. And in Israelis, in Israel's parliamentary system, elections can be called at any time if for whatever government exists. Uh, isn't functioning. So uh, that is the, the, the current thinking that this this outcome of the election, 50-50 as it were, is just not going to produce a stable government. Right out of the box, David, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, has called for a resumption of the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. And meanwhile, King Abdullah, I think this is interesting statement that the king made in Switzerland with international attendees, He said that the only way there can be a two-state solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians is as long as President Obama is in office and has his power. Your thoughts? President Obama is not the Messiah. We've already seen that. Uh, People sort of had expectations uh, in the first election uh, of him here that he was going to do great things, and he's done uh, a number of things. But making peace in the Middle East, hey, Bill Clinton focused on it, George W. Bush focused on it, Jimmy Carter focused on it, many have over the years, and a final peace treaty has never been achieved, and that's basically because what you began our conversation with, the Palestinians are not 
actually ready to live in peace side by side, a Jewish state. Uh, at least many Palestinians are not, and the Muslim fundamentalists particularly, and Hamas for sure, and they're supported by outside forces like Iran, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and others that give them arms and give them money and keep them going in this opposition, and they simply want to see Israel disappear, period. So that's the basic problem, and if President Obama, if Barack Hussein Obama, whose father was a Muslim, if, if with that background he cannot bring them to the peace table, then nobody can. And I don't know that he's tried real hard, but if he tries this second term, uh, in office to do that, I think he'll fail. The Israeli people are not so focused on that issue. That's a side issue right now. They're focused on their economy. They're focused on Iran. They're focused on Syria. These are the imminent uh, crises around them. The, the new government in Egypt, Morsi, and how they're supporting Hamas, these are the issues they're most concerned about because this is what's happening on the ground. And the Palestinians right now are just talking, as they always have, and continuing to not come to the peace table, and that's uh, making preconditions, and that's just the reality of it. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to bring Winky Madad to these microphones, an analysis of these elections from a Jewish settler's perspective. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm in Coconut Creek, Florida. Can you believe that? What a place to be. What a name for a community. Well, we're here at the First Baptist Church of Coconut Creek. Jerry Williamson is a longtime friend. We're going to be getting together and studying the prophetic word of God. His people will gather with us all day Sunday. It's a one-day prophecy conference. Love to have you come. It's the First Baptist Church of Coconut Creek, 5100 West Hillsboro Boulevard. Come on over and join with us. We'll have a first session at 9.30, 10.40 the next one, and then two sessions in the evening starting at 5 o'clock. Well, we're going to continue now looking at the results of the Israeli elections. Now I want to bring to these microphones a longtime broadcast partner, Winky Madad. 
This man has much experience in the political arena. Early on in his experience, he was a associate and one of the administrative staff of a Knesset member. So he, knew has, he knows how the Knesset works and how all these negotiations for putting together a coalition government would take place. Winky, let me go right out of the box asking you, what is your first reaction to how the elections came out? Well, Jimmy, uh, obviously uh, there has been a minor revolution in the ability of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to form his coalition. I want to remind the listeners that uh, Israel's government ruled by the uh, coming together of several parties because never in our history has any one party taken the majority of the seats in the 120 uh, seat Knesset. His new major partner, a, a breakout party, can we call it, with about 19 seats, if I'm not mistaken, is a party that is sort of very difficult to define. I would call it one of these mood parties. What happened was, in a word, Mr. Netanyahu was so successful in portraying himself as strong and able to uh, uh, face Washington, Tehran, and other elements of the external face that people left him and went for their mood rather than for their uh, rational thinking about what Israel's needs are. It was not about nine months ago when he actually decided to go into politics. They started their campaign, and, man, they've come from nowhere, have they not? Well, in a sense, yes. In a sense, not. Many of the uh, people on his list, I would say almost half, are known in various fields, whether rabbinical fields. He has two rabbis on his list. He has a professor of, of communication studies, who I happen to know very well, Aliza Lavie, and some other people, but they've always been people on the outside. And uh, Israel's history with people from the outside has been very poor. You mentioned that I know a bit about the Knesset, and I've seen a few of these parties come and go with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of exuberance, no experience uh, and a little bit even uh, disdain for what's called the nitty-gritty of politics. So then we're not sure that this is going to be a solid government that's going to come to place even after all the negotiating goes on to form the coalition government. In other words, uh, this could be a short-lived government and they could uh, vote down the prime minister and his coalition and go to a, another election not too far down the road. Is that a possibility? That's a distinct possibility. On the other hand, knowing Netanyahu the way I do, he could simply draw out many of these major changes in Israel's economic, political, social uh, framework and fabric for four years and just keep on going. If Lapid gives him a certain freedom on the external affairs, I don't think Mr. Netanyahu would mind playing around with some of these, uh, what we call in Israel, the social issues, social economic issues. 
When you talk about external issues, are you referring to the threat, number one threat probably to Israel, Iran, the possibility of chemical weapons and an attack from Syria by Bashar Assad and all the activities going on with Egypt and their new Islamic radical who is the president of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi? Is that what the external issues would be? I would agree with you on that, and even to a certain extent, uh, the Jewish communities beyond the Green Line in Judea and Samaria, even though uh, Lapid is much more, I'd have to use the word anti, to be fair to him, but it's not that high on his radar. In other words, I'm going to guess now that uh, if the status quo in, in the terms of building within zoned areas and no new communities, uh, we will be able to pass these next uh, up to four years, because really Lapid has no input into uh, these security affairs. He, ha- he and, and uh, except for one or two people on his list, they have no way of saying we know better what uh, the security needs in the South, or how to bomb Iran if necessary, or how to talk to Obama. They're, they're second level on, on that aspect. Well, when you're talking about uh, the effect on Beyond the Green Line, you're talking about the Jewish settlers, about a half a million of them that live out there in Judea and Samaria. And if that be the case, what is this new government uh, going to have as an effect upon them? Uh, well, it, uh, as I said, it's probably a slowdown, since we know the Arabs have a very difficult time with negotiating with anybody. They've negotiated with Barack, they negotiated with Rabin, they negotiated with Omer, they negotiated with Livni. They don't have to blame Mr. Netanyahu for the lack of so-called, and I say so-called with quotation marks around that, progress. And I think that it won't be too much of a difficulty uh, for Netanyahu to explain to his new coalition partners that we aren't going anywhere very fast on this uh, track of uh, peace. And I think one of the reasons why the, the centrist voting bloc gave Lapid as many votes as he got, because they felt that the peace or the so-called uh, conflict wasn't going anywhere, was under control, there was no violence, and we now can afford to turn inwards and try to make a better living for ourselves and to be able to buy apartments for our children in the long run. Well, talking about those uh, negotiations and the possibility of resuming them between the Israelis and the Palestinians, White House has called for that. Do you think this new Netanyahu government is going to be more prone uh, to go th- to the negotiating table with the Palestinians and see if they can come to an agreement? Well, look, I don't know how much Obama is going to press. If I'm not mistaken, and you probably heard his inaugural speech, he also was very much inward-looking rather than the foreign affairs aspect, withdrawing armed forces, ending wars. And I think more people, uh, as the years go by, will recognize the fact that Obama was not good on the foreign affairs agenda, especially in the Middle East, and uh, perhaps to be a withdrawal of involvement there, too, which would uh, not give Israel the undue pressure that everybody's threatening will come down on Israel. 
Well, it's going to be a very interesting four years should the Netanyahu government last that long. Even if it doesn't, it's still going to be a very interesting ride as we watch everything happen in Israel because there's never a dull moment as far as Israeli politics are concerned. Uh, Being uh, those who are students of the Word of God, you as an Orthodox Jew, me as a Christian, However, we recognize that God is still in charge, even of human government, and he's going to have the ultimate say, is he not? Absolutely. Uh, uh, The religious issues will be high on the agenda uh, here in Israel, which will force the secularists to come to terms with a rich Jewish heritage and the religious dimension of life, which hopefully will be uh, a positive force for all in Israel in the next few years. Winky Madad, he's a special friend and an excellent broadcast partner as we analyze the results and then the formation of a new government under Prime Minister Netanyahu for the Israeli body politic. Winky, thank you so very much, my good friend. I'm absolutely sure in the next four years you and I will have a lot of conversations, and I look forward to that time with you. Thank you, Winky. Thank you, Jimmy. Goodbye to you and our listeners. You know, Winky Madad brings some very important information to the table for us to consider as he took a few moments to analyze the results of the recent Israeli elections. Well, you may want to go back and re-listen to that. He had a lot of information, and probably it came pretty quick for you. So go to our website, prophecytoday.com. There you can listen to all of our broadcast partners, or re-listen, or tell a friend about how they can listen to this very important information given out by our broadcast partners. A broadcast partner that we call upon each and every week is Dr. Rob Congdon, and he looks at the European Union with us. Rob, let me just begin by talking to you. Any reaction as it relates to the uh, the election results there in Israel with Prime Minister Netanyahu coming back to power? Are the EU leaders concerned, happy, or just neutral? Uh, They pretty much expected that result, and so therefore I would say they would be neutral, uh, ready to continue to work with him, and recognizing from their viewpoint the difficulties of a man who clearly is looking out for Israel. So they're ready to work with him, and it really didn't come as any kind of surprise that he won. And we'll see how that all plays out uh, in the near future, I do believe, as the Prime Minister of Israel forms his coalition government. Rob, talk to me about the Mali situation. There are concerns that uh, what's going on on the ground in Mali with the French forces and possibly the EU forces, it may cause some uh, anti-EU demonstrations by the Islamists there in the EU. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's true. Um, I, I noticed one top counterterrorism official said it could increase the risk of revenge. And I felt like saying, really? I, I never thought of such a thing. I think as a whole, they've all recognized there is a danger in it, and they need to be alert. As I've mentioned, I think just last week, though, Europeans are much more watchful. And so in many ways, it's the individual citizens that are some of the biggest security strengths of Europe in terms of these dangers. So they'll go on recognizing that there could be a problem, and uh, we'll just have to see if the security measures prevent it. 
I noticed in some of the reporting coming out of Europe that the Islamists have said they're going to dominate both France and Great Britain. Boy, that doesn't bode well. No, it doesn't. Uh, I do find it interesting that way back in when I first moved to Britain in 2000, there were signs everywhere saying that uh, Islam was going to take over Britain. We we're 12 years later. Uh, they certainly have progressed. And uh, so there's no doubt that they will seek to dominate both France and Britain. They, they follow a standard procedure, and I noticed that this particular group that's been protesting is doing the same thing. They make themselves very visible. That's step one. Step two, and this is probably the most dangerous, they start getting control of local, what are called city councils and local schools. And after they get that control in the local area, their goal is to take over on the national level. So that is progressing. They are working on Sharia law throughout all of Europe, and that is their goal. And unless those in Europe uh, who are not Islamic uh, recognize it and really start guarding at the local levels, I think they can progress quite a ways before perhaps there will be a major conflict. Rob, are they into step two right now? Uh, I've seen that in many areas. Uh, one area was Glasgow, where they uh, basically had started demanding that they get real say and control in the schools because the population of the student population was so large Islamic. And in fact, in some of the private Roman Catholic schools, they had started demanding to let them run the schools now because they had more Islamic students than Roman Catholics. So, yes, that's very clear. The visibility, by the way, is almost comical. You can see certain people are trained to walk on major streets at a regular timed interval, and you can almost time it and predict it. So they are following those first two steps with the goal of the third. Rob, I couldn't hardly wait to ask you about uh, Prime Minister Cameron in the British Empire. And uh, the warning to the EU that there's some possibilities that Great Britain may pull out. Tell me, uh, clarify all of this for me. Well, he made a major speech uh, this week. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron is from what's called the Tory Party or the conservative groups. Uh, they increasingly are recognizing that Brits are starting to say they want out of the EU. Britain wants to pull back somewhat from its involvement in the EU. He's appealing to the home audience. He is worried about an upcoming election, regaining power, or keeping it, and the third party is, is a major force, so he has to appeal to them. But at the same time, he has stirred up the European Union because of the suggestion that maybe Britain would like to pick and choose what parts of the EU they want to participate in. And uh, that does concern the EU leaders. Meanwhile, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, and President Hollande of France, they're saying, hey, we're looking and we're dreaming for an EU utopia. What's that about? Well, yes, uh, they are very strong EU. They are pro a increased uh, European Union leadership with a diminishing of the local powers. Uh, they chose the occasion of a 50th anniversary, if you will, of what was called the Elysee Peace Treaty, which really uh, brought France and, and Germany together as friends and interchanging programs with students and many others. They are the force right now in the European Union. So when they are speaking and they're talking about this utopian dream, uh, we're talking about a dream that goes back centuries, in fact, millennium, that says a united Europe, a single country of Europe, united, can bring, bring peace and prosperity to its citizens. Uh, 
Um, they want to regain the days of the Roman Empire, in which all was under one control and was peace. And so both these leaders of France and Germany are merely expressing the utopian or the dream. It's often called the dream of Europe uh, that has been written about over and over for the last, uh, at least, that I'm thinking, six centuries I've seen writings on that topic. So they're just the current voices saying we have to move further to more integration, more to a single Europe. And, and a revived Roman Empire. I heard that phrase in there. Boy, that sounds prophetic. Oh, absolutely. And as I said, it's interesting. Not only do the scriptures tell us that that will occur in the future, and that future is hard to define whether that's very near or not quite so near, but uh, to find how many secular sources and secular writers through the centuries have been dreaming of the same thing shows that that is a goal. And as we know scripturally, it is Satan's goal to unite the world under him and certainly not under the Lord Jesus Christ with his millennial kingdom. So uh, we're seeing it come from every direction now, scriptural and from the secular world. That dream is being talked about. Dr. Rob Congdon talking about politics, but we can't fail to talk about the prophetic significance of all of this politics, especially in the possible near future. Rob, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. We'll look forward to it. Lord bless. Dr. Rob Congdon, always available with information so essential to our understanding of what's going on in the European Union, as indeed it does set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Another good friend of us right here on Prophecy Today and a broadcast partner that has assisted us for many, many years Looking into geopolitical activities across this world is Colonel Bob McGinnis. Normally we would catch him in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, but he's taking a little bit of R&R out at, uh, uh, well, actually, where are you, Bob? Um, Jackson, uh, Wyoming, Jimmy. Uh, beautiful location, big cold, and of course we came here for the snow. Yes, absolutely. Well, hope you have a great time and be careful. Don't break any bones out there. Let me get to you about an article that you have written, and we have it posted on our homepage, prophecytoday.com, and it is focusing on Africa and the unrest going on there. And you say that it has Obama administration fingerprints all over it. Now, we're talking about Mali and Algeria. Uh, what do you mean, first of all, the main theme, and then we'll look at the different locations separately? Well, that was verified last uh, Wednesday when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton testified in the U.S. Senate about Benghazi. You see, the, the whole Libyan debacle, uh, us going in, we took down Libya, we were followed by other NATO allies to, in, to help the rebels uh, topple Gaddafi, and then, of course, even today, we continue to see that country going in a radical Islamist direction. Well, the consequences of that have a direct impact on Algeria and Mali, which I argue in the article, and specifically, as Clinton, as Clinton indicated, the, um, the weapons that were all over that place found their way into places like Syria and Mali and so forth. So that's part of the problem. But also the fighters. Some of the fighters, we believe, that were in Benghazi also in, were involved in this Algerian hostage activity. And also, by the way, uh, some of our activities in working with the Mali military actually put in position the people that conducted the coup 
uh, over a year ago. So, you know, our fingerprints, the United States, the Obama administration's fingerprints were all over this debacle in that part of the world. Look at Molly for me just a moment, and let's let everybody understand what's going on there. It's, uh, as I understand it, has a connection with France, and France is now a major player in assisting uh, those in Mali to fight uh, the insurgency by the Islamists that are trying to overthrow the country. Is that correct? Yeah, well, you know, it's a Francophone country of former French colony. Uh, the government, the democratic government of southern Mali, asked the French to intervene because the capital was, you know, in almost overrun by the northern uh, groups. Now, keep in mind, this goes back a long, long time. Those people like Bedouins that roam the northwestern African uh, area, the deserts there, the Sahara, are a, a group that have been trying to rebel against the Mali government for years and years. They're nomadic people. They're Berbers. And they align themselves with Islamics, al-Qaeda and, Islamic, and the Islamic Maghreb, uh, certainly Al-Qaeda core. There are many, many other franchises of Al-Qaeda in that part of the world. And so they are establishing a, an Islamist radical government uh, in northern Mali, uh, which threatens, I think, not only that country, but every country around them, Niger, Mauritania, Algeria, even Libya. And we already see a significant influence of radical Islamism down in Nigeria, which is the largest populated country in Western Africa, and I think a very important one to us because of their oil production. Well, look at Algeria for us just a moment. Uh, is this a uh, evidence of things to come as it relates to any type of foreign workers working any place in the world with the Islamists going after them some way? Oh, there's no doubt. You know, keep in mind, back in the 90s, the Algerians fought a war with Islamists, and over 100,000 people died. Uh, that's little known, perhaps, outside of that part of the world. Uh, but any foreign workers, uh, especially in the desert where they extract the petroleum, which is uh, a key part of their economy, uh, they're under uh, threat, and the Algerians do everything they can. And that's why I think they were so brutal uh, taking down that particular hostage situation is because they want to send a very clear message that they will not tolerate that sort of behavior in the future, and yet we have every reason to believe that it's going to grow, as evidenced, I think, by the testimony of Hillary Clinton uh, in her Benghazi appearance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee the other day. You say when it's going to grow, you're not only talking about Algeria. Are you not talking about all of Africa and maybe even the entire Middle East? Well, certainly the Sahel and Sub-Sahara. Uh, which is a, a very large piece of terrain from uh, on the west, Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, on the Atlantic Ocean, all the way to the Indian Ocean in the east, which is 3,000 miles. This is larger than the continental United States in area. Uh, and, of course, you know, northern Africa is mostly Arabic-speaking, and that's why a lot of the fighters that joined Afghanistan, Iraq, and even now Syria they came from. We have been battling in places like Benghazi for years, uh, those types of Islamists, and of course they returned to, of course, do what they did to us on September the 11th and killing four Americans. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Bob, I know that indeed over the years you've had a relationship there at the Pentagon in strategic planning and with a connection to Africa itself. And so let me ask you this, how powerful is Islam in the continent of Africa? Well, Islam's uh, power is, has been until recently uh, concentrated in northern Africa, but it is pushing south and through the sub-Sahara. Uh, we've seen, of course, the battles with Boko Haram in Nigeria, which is splitting that country all the way over to uh, Uganda and Kenya, which are suffering from the same sort of uh, Islamist incrementalism, which is, is having a major impact. Uh, so we are going to continue to see, I think, wars in that part of the world that have a sectarian um, basis, and of course, the aggressor in most of these cases is going to be the Islamists. Yes, and that's going to spread. I'm certain of that because of what God's Word has to say as it relates to the end times. Bob, I can't let you go without asking you a question about what Leon Panetta, the present Secretary of Defense, had to say about women in combat. Uh, talk to me about really how viable is it, and is it a good move? to allow women to be in combat? Well, I've argued against uh, direct ground combat for women for, for decades, Jimmy, and that's well publicized and searchable on the Internet. The, the arguments that are being made by the, what I call the liberals on this issue is that, well, women are in combat. You know, yeah, they're incidental in places like Iraq and Afghanistan where a mortar or an improvised explosive device goes off and wounds or kills young women. We've lost 130 uh, killed in those two combat theaters. But that doesn't uh, relate to direct combat uh, by, you know, especially ground combatants like infantrymen. And I make arguments uh, and have um, even recently in articles about the differences in the physical demands uh, placed on ground combatants, and women don't have an equal opportunity. I make the argument about aggressiveness uh, amongst men and women Men tend to be documented as far more aggressive, something that we need, but women don't tend to be. Uh, certainly the, the, all, the idea of keeping all male cohesive teams as the best fighting unit is very critical to our best interests. Uh, women don't seem to fit into those environments, and we've documented that with one study or another. And, of course, uh, the whole idea that women want to volunteer to go into ground combat carrying 60-80 pound packs uh, when they have a far less of an opportunity uh, to survive and don't have a physical makeup as do young men. Well, signs of the times, that's for certain. Bob, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break right now, and right after the news, I'll have a very special guest right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here. We've got about 30 minutes left on Prophecy today, and I don't want you to go away. There's a newscast upcoming right after that. I have a very special guest that we'll be talking to, and then I will take a look at the book. We'll bring all of the details from our broadcast partners together, help you understand the prophetic scenario found in God's Word and how close we are to the return of Jesus Christ. We'll be back in five minutes right here on Prophecy Today. 
Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're going into this segment. I have a very, very interesting interview with Rabbi Yoel Karen. We'll talk with him in just a moment. Keep the dial set right where it is. Our poll question is on our website, prophecytoday.com. Here's the poll question. The White House has called for the resumption of the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. This at a time when the United Nations has granted Palestinian state status and there is a new Israeli government in place. However, Daniel 9.27 does foretell of a peace agreement in the Middle East under the leadership of Antichrist. Could what we see happening today be setting the stage for the fulfillment of Daniel 9.27? That's our poll question. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. And there's many other things at the website, information about PASS, our prophetic army of senior saints. In addition to that, we have our shopping mall where you can purchase any of our items, our archives of our Prophecy Q&A. That's all available at prophecytoday.com plus Prophecy Today Radio Network, where you have all of our archived radio broadcasts available. You can listen to any part of today's broadcast, the interviews, the entire program, or any in the past as well. That's all at prophecytoday.com. Now we're going to continue looking at the results of the Israeli elections, how the coalition government is going to come together, and what it will mean as it relates to those people who are interested in in putting a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They're making preparations. They want to build the temple there. And, in fact, they would like to even at this time be able to visit the Temple Mount. What about this new government that's going to come into power in Israel? How will it affect all of these activities among those who are activists with building the temple. The man who we call upon to find out all the information, he's one of those activists. He knows all the players, and we have a great opportunity to be able to chat with him often. I'm talking about Rabbi Yoel Karen in Jerusalem. And Rabbi, let me start immediately to get your thoughts on how these elections came out. I know the coalition has not been formed. We don't know who all the parties who are going to be in the government. Looks like Netanyahu will be the prime minister. But uh, first blush, what are your thoughts about the elections? Well, I mean, it was a, in certain ways it was a huge disappointment, but there's always a silver lining. You know, I, of course, would have liked to have seen a more right-leaning government. I don't necessarily believe in right and left. I believe in right and wrong. But... Um, I would have liked to have seen a, a bit more of a right-leaning government. Uh, what happens is in, in every Israeli election, there's about uh, 20 of the 120 seats go to people who just wanted some sort of a change. They just weren't satisfied and they wanted some sort of a change. And so we had one particular party running. They really said nothing in their party platform except uh, we're new. And, and everyone on their list was someone who had never summed, served in government, and they ended up getting 19 seats. So that's right in line with what we know about the Israeli electorate. So this is who Netanyahu will probably try to form a coalition with, first and foremost. It allows him to edge out the Jewish Home Party, which is more nationalist and right-leaning. He, he'll only have to bring them into the government, into a coalition, if something falls through with, with, uh, with the... Um, the, what's called the, uh, the the future party, Yeshatid. There is a future party, and these are sort of centrists. They really had nothing to say, but the, the, the one thing that they really did take a stand on was that they they have a vision of 
of two states for two people side by side. They're in favor of a Palestinian state, you know, which is just, it's a disaster for us. And then Yahoo will bring them into the government. He brings into his government people that he thinks he can control the best, who, who represent the least threat to him. So that's why he would prefer not to have any strong Jewish leadership, uh, religious Jewish leadership in the, in the government with him. So we'll see what happens. The, the, the silver lining that I mentioned is obviously for me, it's, it's Moshe Feiglin getting into the Knesset for the first time ever. And for, for anyone who is involved with the Temple Mount and looking forward to a temple, that's huge because this is a man who desperately wants a temple built in Jerusalem. He goes up to the Temple Mount all the time. He's been arrested several times for praying and bowing down and, and falling flat on his face on the Temple Mount. And now he's a Knesset member and he's got parliamentary immunity and they can't arrest him for doing that anymore so this is this is very big not necessarily for this government but the next two three elections now that he's actually a sitting member of parliament of knesset it's really going to increase his standing and his stature with the people so we're looking forward to him being prime minister one day now he's one of 120 knesset members and I guess one of 31 of the Likud party and the combination they came together with uh, as it relates to the government, 31 seats in Prime Minister Netanyahu's own personal party. But that'll have to form a coalition, of course. How active can he be? Is he going to have to soften his rhetoric some as it relates to the temple? Or can he continue to be an activist and especially focused on the Temple Mount and access to the Temple Mount itself? Now, if, if I know Moshe Feiglin at all, he'll be even more of an activist now. This, this, he, gets, he has a lot more rights and privileges than he did as a private citizen. And he'll be even more active now. So he's not, he's not under threat of a, there's nothing Netanyahu can do to get rid of him. You know, if he was a minister and, and had a cabinet post, Netanyahu could fire him from a cabinet post. But Netanyahu's obviously not going to give him a cabinet post. Because ultimately, Feiglin is a threat to him. Every single Likud primary, Feiglin climbs up further and further, climbs up the ladder. And his goal is ultimately to take over the Likud. And hopefully one day he'll do so. What is the, uh, body politic there in that 120-member Knesset. Uh, and by that I mean how many of them would be Temple activists or Temple Mount activists are of this same persuasion as Moshe Feiglin? Well, unfortunately, the party that, that would have had basically all Temple Mount activists on its list did not make it into the Knesset. And I, they they were short about 9,000 votes of getting into the Knesset, and that would have been the, the, the Strength for Israel party. This is the only party that I saw as a real option to vote for because they, they demanded equality. They demanded that, that Arab citizens pay taxes just like Jewish citizens, that everyone serves in the army, that everyone's loyal to the state. And, and they, wanted, they, they wanted freedom of Jewish worship, freedom, not just Jewish worship, they wanted freedom for all non-Muslims, for all religions to be able to, to worship on the Temple Mount. They wanted Jews and Christians to be able to pray there. And this was part of their, their platform. This was, this was publicly stated at every single event, that they, every, every panel discussion that they spoke at. So they, they ran short. There were a lot of the Israeli politics. Is Boy, it's about as dirty as it gets. And, and what happened was there was a smear campaign and a campaign that was run telling people don't vote for them because if they don't pass the threshold, then your vote will be wasted. You'll basically be throwing it away if they don't get into the Knesset. Those votes just sort of disappear. 
And so people were afraid, afraid to vote for them, and that's exactly what happened, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. These other parties went around and told people, don't vote for them. It, uh, it, it unfortunately had an effect on the nationalist Jewish public. So there are not many, many Knesset members who are in favor of building a temple. Moshe Feiglin is, is one of maybe a handful that I could point to. So it's, it's a pretty, that's a pretty sad situation. But if I wanted any of them in there, it would have been Moshe Feiglin, and I'm, and I'm glad he's in. Because, again, the key with this government, this government will come and go. It could fall apart in as little as a few months, a year. We don't know. But uh, the, the key is for the next election and the election after that to see what happens now that Moshe Feiglin is actually a Knesset member. And again, this, this changes his status. This changes the way the Israeli public views him. He'll be taken much more seriously now. Well, let's step back just for a moment. Okay, now we see the uh, coalition building process going on, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, supposedly the next prime minister. He has to uh, have a 61-vote simple majority in the Knesset in order to be able to claim that he is the next prime minister. That looks like it's a foregone conclusion, although, as you say, anything can happen in Israeli politics. Uh, But let's step back a moment. Any government, and especially if it's Netanyahu's, how, how is it going to affect uh, the building of the next temple. Will it have any effect? Will it slow down uh, those activists who are preparing to build that temple? Talk to me about that. I don't, I don't, I don't, think, I don't see any change, really, with this government, this, this next Knesset that's coming in the 19th Knesset. I really don't see any big change on the horizon. And again, I, I'm telling you, I've been here long enough, and I've, I've seen enough of these elections. This government could fall apart very, very quickly. Because Netanyahu did not get the majority that he thought he would, he's he's having to he's got a a lot of different people that he's got to try to satisfy all at once to hold this thing together because he doesn't have the majority that he wanted, and so it it could fall apart and we could end up going right back to elections. I've I've seen this happen before, so we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I really don't see a change in the status quo at the Temple Mount right now. I, the the hot issue for this government going in is to a strike on Iran. That's, that's, what, that's what we're looking for is the next big thing. Yes, indeed. There are many, many problems that the next government will have to deal with. The Iranian development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, chemical weapons in the hands of Bashar Assad, the civil war going on there, his threat to attack Israel should he fall. you got the Egyptian military and uh, all of their political activists involved in endeavoring to possibly do away with any relationship between Egypt and Israel. In fact, their president calling the Jewish people apes and pigs. So, you know, that's the situation there. And so these are going to be concerns for the next government. Are, are the activists going to do anything to try to have equal access up onto the Temple Mount? And is that a possibility with any new government but why is it important for the Jewish people to have access onto the Temple Mount? Well, I'll tell you, as far as the Temple Mount activists go, and, and I've been pushing this a lot in the last two days, because you know, a lot of people told me, you know, you wasted your vote by voting for a small party. And it's the same thing that people say to me about, you're wasting your time trying to work for a change on the Temple Mount, because it's just not going to happen anytime soon. So why throw all your efforts into something like this? And I always tell them, there's a teaching by 
by a certain rabbi a couple of hundred years ago. And he talked about four different personalities of people. And he focused on two of them. He says one is a guy who does, but he cares. The other one is a guy who does, and he doesn't care. And he says the guy that does and cares, he's like Esau. What, is, what does that mean? He says he knows what's right, he knows what to do, but he's only going to do it if he thinks he has a good chance of succeeding at it. The other, the one who does and doesn't care, he says he's like Jacob. He's going to do what's right, whether he thinks he has a chance of succeeding or not. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and we have a choice between right and wrong. You do what's right, and you don't worry about the outcome. You leave that to God to worry about. So that's the attitude I had when I made my vote the other day, and that's the attitude that I have about this, this next coming few years with this government. I'm going to do, I'm going to keep doing what I, what I do. I'm going to keep doing what God has commanded me to do and keep working towards the goals that the Bible commands me to, whether I think I have any chance of success or not. And I'm going to let God worry about the results. You know, that is a great attitude. I like what you said early on in our conversation. You don't believe in right and left. You believe right and wrong. (laughs) That was a great quote. But then allowing God to take charge of this whole situation. As we look at the ancient Jewish prophets, the end result is that the Temple Mount will belong to the Jewish people. There will be a temple there. And that's the conclusion God's word says. And that's going to be the ultimate end and final activity of that Temple Mount, the temple and everything else. Would you not agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's basically what it comes down to is a person who can't bring themselves to do and to work towards something that looks like it's out of their reach, ultimately that shows that they're a person of very, very weak or little faith. I believe, I, I believe that temple is going to be there because the Word of God says it. And if I don't work toward it, how can I really claim that I believe in God or I believe in His Word? I do believe these things, and that's why I don't care what people tell me, uh, how far-fetched the idea is. Because if history's taught us anything, things can change on a dime here. Things can change at the drop of a hat. And things that no one ever thought were possible can happen and happen very quickly. In 1948, 1967, we shocked the world. And that can be done again very easily. Wow. Do what God is telling us and directing us to do. Well, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll keep on keeping on, and we'll be talking again down the line for sure. Thank you very much. Wow, a very important interview. Always love talking with Rabbi Yoel Karen. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of 
of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today Weekend for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today Weekend, we looked at the results of the Israeli elections with analysis from each of our broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman was in Washington, D.C. I do believe there is a reason behind Obama's dislike for the Israeli people, and in particular, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, that all figures in into every decision that's made in Washington as it relates to the Jewish state of Israel. Ken brought that to our attention. David Dolan came along. He was giving us a Middle East news update, and of course our discussion had to be on Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu seemingly re-elected. David brought to our attention that there's going to be a long process of putting together a coalition government before we really know if indeed, technically, that Prime Minister Netanyahu has been re-elected. With David Dolan, we also talked about how Israel is living in a tough and rough neighborhood. He's going to have to deal, this new government, whoever it is, if it's Prime Minister Netanyahu, he will have to deal with Egypt. President Mohammed Morsi was a leader in the Muslim Brotherhood. Now he's the leader of the entire state of Egypt. They do not like the Jewish state. They are considering negating the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Of course, the Syrian civil war is continuing. It's intensifying. Bashar Assad on a ship, it seems, off the coast of Syria, giving direct orders to his military. If indeed he falls as the leader of Syria, that the military of Syria is immediately to attack the state of Israel so that Bashar Assad can go out a victor, having made the first attack on the Jewish state. In fact, he made this statement that even if Damascus is destroyed, he's going to still win. Everything he's talking about has an unbelievable prophetic significance. The next government's going to have to deal with the Palestinians and that peace process that uh, everybody's calling for. You have the President of the United States saying he wants the resumption of the peace process right away. European Union saying that they have a plan. 
that they want to put together with the Israelis and the Palestinians to bring about a coexistence in the Middle East. And we're talking about all these problems for the new Israeli government. We've not even mentioned the number one threat for Israel, and that's Iran and their development of a weapon of mass destruction. We talked with Winky Madad. He discussed a possible coalition government, how will it all come together. And Dr. Rob Congdon, reporting on the European Union, said they're watching. They're standing by on the sidelines with this peace plan, ready to offer it, seeing if they can get back to the negotiating table and so that the Israelis and the Palestinians can have direct discussions about how they may be able to have some type of an agreement. I did say, in fact, that Obama Obama has already called for the resumption of the peace process. The quartet, now that's the quartet, the United States, European Union, United Nations, and Russia. They want this peace process to be resumed as well. And Israel is saying they're willing. We'll be ready to go to the table and talk with the Palestinians. However, the Palestinians continue to put preconditions in place. They want to know what the borders are going to be. They want all the Jewish settlements destroyed, evacuated. They would like to make sure they have the right of return for all the Palestinian refugees. And, of course, they want Jerusalem as the capital city for the state of Palestine. Well, I'll have to remind you that world leaders have been wanting to bring a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for many, many years. Everybody has failed thus far. There is going to be a peace treaty, and in fact, it may be a part of what they already have on the table called the Oslo Accords. Remember, back in 1993, it was September the 13th, 1993, when at the White House, then Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, then the leader of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and then President Bill Clinton met together on the White House lawn, and they signed the Oslo Accords. This was a peace agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, supposedly to be the end of all the problems going on in that country of Israel. But I want to remind you, that peace treaty, the Oslo Accords, has never been normalized. It's on the table. It's simply not working. Well, there will be a peace treaty in the Middle East. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 says that exactly. Here's what Daniel 9 says. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, the he there is the Antichrist. Confirm a covenant, that would be the peace treaty, with many, that's the Jewish people, and at least the Palestinian people, for one week, and that's the seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation. This time period of seven years of judgment upon the entire earth for the purpose of bringing the earth and earth dwellers under submission so that Jesus Christ can return and set up his kingdom on the earth will start the clock ticking on the seven-year period of time when that peace treaty is confirmed. Listen to the verse again. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm. Now listen, that is not sign a peace treaty, that is confirm a peace treaty. The word in Hebrew is gabar, G-A-B-A-R. It's never translated sign, it's always translated confirmed, or it could be translated strengthen or make stronger. The peace treaties have to be on the table so that the Antichrist can appear and say, hey, I can confirm that peace treaty. Here's how the process goes. Daniel 7 and verse 7 says the ten horns will appear, and that will be the revived Roman Empire, according to Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. 
Out of those ten horns, chapter 7 and verse 8 says, a little horn will come forth. Now that phrase, a little horn, is one of 27 names for the Antichrist. He will appear. He will be a major player on this earth. And then the peace agreement will come into existence. Again, I take you back to our main verse today, and that's Daniel 9, 27. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, that's a peace treaty, with many, and that's the Jewish people and their neighbors, and we're focusing on the Palestinians today. A resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will take place, and that actually starts the clock ticking on the seven-year tribulation period. With all the talk and all the calls by President Obama in the United States, by the European Union, Catherine Ashton heading up the foreign policy situation with the EU, and everybody else, all the world leaders wanting to have peace, a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is going to happen. And that peace treaty that's on the table already may well be confirmed at any moment. But just prior to the confirmation of that peace treaty, the shout from Jesus Christ comes, those of us in the body of Christ, the Christians in this world, will leave this earth to go into the heavenlies to be with him forevermore. And that's the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. Join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 